Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Brown Girl Green. But I am here live in Miami Beach for Aspen Ideas Festival. I'm so excited to be interviewing today's guest, who is an incredible artist. I heard him speak here at Aspen. I was very inspired by his words and journey as a creative, someone who's been on this journey for a while and has had to tread the line of understanding how to be independent, how to be a creative, how to be an entrepreneur, how to be a bridge builder, all in one person. And I relate very deeply to that as a young person who views myself as a lot of those identities. As a young woman of color, it's great meeting people who have done this work and are leaving those legacies and those pathways behind. And you had such an amazing talk this morning about intergenerational conversations. And that's exactly why I'm having you here on Brown Girl Green. So if you can tell the people who you are, that would be great to start off with. Sure. I'm Xavier Cortada, and I am an artist. I'm an artist that uses arts elasticity to engage communities in problem solving. And I've done this for a very long time, which is why I have gray hair. <laughs> across, really across the world, you know, in every, in every continent, and mostly in my community as a, as a way of trying to bridge some divides, as a way of trying to heal, trying to... We can talk a little bit more about it as you ask questions, but I am an artist who uses the power of this universal language, the power of art, to reach out across communities, to reframe the way people think, to give them a sense of agency, and to tap into their creativity so they can be the true agents of change. That's what I do. Incredible. And I'm happy to be here with you, by the way. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm so thrilled. Thank you for... Uh, for listening this morning and uh, you know we saw each other at cop 26 and we you know we we were in this work together right to try to really effectuate some real positive and lasting change and i'm happy to share my perspectives with you and and thank you for all you do as well yeah you know? no thank you so much and yeah i mean what i was really inspired by with your story and your work is that you're very much about community your work is rooted in thinking about the community voice when it comes to climate. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about some of your bigger projects here in Miami? Well, in many ways, just as you look outside the window, we're here at the Miami Beach Convention Center. And, you know, just a block that way, you have Lincoln Road. And in 2006, I had volunteers come and remind people that that this used to be a mangrove forest that literally just about at this elevation on the second floor you could be atop a beautiful man mangrove plant and see these propagules these cigar-shaped little green seedlings dangling from that tree so what i did is on the storefronts of lincoln road i had volunteers dangle them but in vertical nurseries Whoa. we created these nurseries with water-filled clear cups that would take the light that reflected to the water and it would shine and shimmer on the floor but in those cups hung like a city grid rows and columns like streets and avenues were these mangroves the most unique indigenous native being mm -hmm. that belonged on this island this life-giving life-protecting nurturing plant that provided habitat for animals but also protected the people who lived on the land from the storm surge because as you know mangroves grow at the water's edge right so that when a storm comes those roots protect them anyway it was important for me to let people understand that we had to find a better way of coexisting with nature mm -hmm. and that's what i wanted them to do so i took those volunteers into mangrove forest they collected mangrove propagules they experienced the forest for the first time many of them really and then those propagules hung 
And it was the volunteers, community-based was your question, right? It was the yes. volunteers who asked the store owners to put them on the windows. And they educated the store owners about what these mangroves were. And then the store owners, the clerks, were telling visitors, 400-some thousand of them a year, because <laughs> these are real visual spectacles. Just imagine a window full of these little green things in water-filled cups. It began a dialogue where people started really engaging with one another. And that's what eco-art did, right? Mm. So it was empowering the volunteers in immersing them in nature and then having them become eco-emissaries. Wow. That was 06. Uh, since then... 2006. 06. Wow. 2006. I was the first eco-artist yeah, in the community. Yeah, you're like, I'm like, you own yeah. that. You were the first eco-artist. You know, and, oh, that's and, really and we... I just, I needed to saw. look, this is what happened. I was driving down to the Florida Keys, and I saw an entire stretch, 18 miles of mangrove forest being bulldozed because they wanted to widen the road. Mm. So for years, I had been working as a socially engaged activist. I was working with kids in adult prison, mm. working with public housing, trying to get residents public housing to be more engaged and have government be more responsive to them, doing a lot of stuff around affordable housing, just working in community, juvenile justice issues. It was a lot of the work I was doing. Wow. And of course, a lot of global work too. I did this across you know, um, Africa and, and uh, Latin America and Europe back in the day. And it was mostly around social justice issues because as you probably know, my original training is as a lawyer, but I used art and murals to communicate these ideas. So when I saw the destruction of mangroves, I used those same tools I used as an activist, right? Wow. How do, how do we get these mangroves saved? And that was in 04 when I saw that happen. And by 06, I realized, you know, we needed to bring some awareness. And I literally started taking those very mangroves in the vertical nurseries and started planting them along Biscayne Bay. So that's wow. the genesis, if you will. So it was art that was created as a way of solving a problem back in the 90s and then using that art in this environmental sphere in the mid-2000s and i have been at it ever since <laughs> wow 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 okay so we need a backup because yeah. you just were like okay i built this incredible insulation doing eco art education all these amazing things but then you also popped up and said that you used to have a past life as a lawyer yeah. And you probably had some other past lives. So can you get into a little bit of like your backstory, your past yeah. life, sharing a little bit about your journey with us? I think the most important thing I can tell you is that I'm the son of two Cuban refugees. Mm. I think that's the most important thing I can tell you. Yeah. And that I grew up in a household that didn't know where home was. Mm. Is it Miami? Are we going back to Cuba? You know, that was the household. And it was a household that was informed by wave after wave of Cuban immigrant who had suffered either political prisons or clearly the displacement of, of everything. So mm. I, I am in a family, I remember writing letters to family members in Cuba. I was born here in the U.S., but you know, obviously the immediate family of my mom and dad. Right. Uh, so there was always this distance and this, the tearing between the two. And dad was an artist. And the work that he and his brother and other artists created when they first got here was about the pain and suffering of the exile experience, the displacement. So art has always been a political thing for me. It hasn't mm. been about pretty pictures. It's been about using the power of art to really get at people's emotions, transcend and connect with one another. That's what art means to me at, mm. at my core. That's what art is. So it was really an easy transition. I'm here, an attorney, 
working on juvenile justice issues in Miami-Dade County. As a, you know, as a guy who was a chair of the Dade County Bar Association Juvenile Court Committee, right? Wow. Uh, you know, as a guy who, who cares about juvenile justice issues. And because of the work we did here at the University of Miami, I was an attorney, but director of juvenile violence and delinquency prevention programs at the University of Miami. Yeah. The U.S. Embassy saw the work we did and was inviting me to go to different locations, mostly across Latin America. But eventually, I found myself in Soweto, South Africa in 1994. Wow. And that was in October, just months after apartheid ended. Right? So... It was a momentous time, and I was in. And how old were you at that time? So I was a kid. I, I had just turned thirty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I don't know if that's a kid, but I thought I was a kid. You know, you know? no, that's like around. You know, I'm getting there. So yeah, uh, no, yeah that's, well, cool. I, that's cool. I, yeah, well, look. Um, until just recently, I still consider myself a kid. But you know what I mean? I was a young man. Yeah. But you know what? A young man who literally was uh, effectuating change, just like all the the youth at this very summit. I'm so impressed with. You know, with a 20-year-old I just met at the summit who's doing wonderful things around around 20 different sites across the globe. So I'm seeing the power, and in many ways I see myself reflected in them. But I digress. The point I'm trying to make is I'm here in Soweto speaking with kids who have been dealing with substance abuse in Soweto, South Africa. I Part of my juvenile justice portfolio dealt with substance abuse issues. I was a founding executive director of a drug rehab center while I was in law school. And I started speaking to these kids in Soweto, and, and they obviously couldn't communicate because they spoke a Zulu dialect, mm. and I spoke English and Spanish. So <laughs> I started drawing, and they started drawing, and we started using art as a way of really connecting with one another. Wow. And I said, wow, maybe, just maybe, we've got <laughs> something here. And that that was a transformational time for me. At that point, I began to pivot my practice, not as a professor and not as an attorney, but as an artist, a socially engaged artist. I came back to the States and continued working with murals. And then I started going back to Latin America, but this time not to give lectures to train mm. professors or practitioners, but to use art to communicate with others. So that's the, that's the attorney turned artist, but that. always, always about society and community. Mm. And when I told you the most important thing in the portfolio is the lived experience yeah. of an immigrant is because you understand how important you are to the other mm. when you're trying to belong, when you're trying to connect, when you're trying to basically persevere. And the immigrant experience of my family was actually a very supportive one compared to the ugliness of the immigrant experience in America today. The oh. way that so many immigrants are, are debased and the xenophobic attitudes of this nation towards immigrants. So I'm telling you that I felt it, but it's nothing, even, you know, in the 60s, nothing compared to the horror show that we have at the border today. Yeah. And anyway, that experience propels you to to understand how, how important community is. And then mm. all the spaces that my family inhabited trying to understand who they were and how they were going to build life anew. Two kids, mom and dad were 22, monolinguistic, showing up in a strange land, not knowing where they were going to go back. Mm. Family mm -hmm. members being, you know, detained, you know, summary executions, you know, like all, all this horror that was happening 
as this world was whirling around them in the U.S. And here they're raising three kids trying to figure stuff out. Mm. That that makes you, yeah. right? those lived experiences. So that's what you're seeing in, in this environmentalist, someone who understands the context of community and understands how we are interdependent with one another. So initially, my go-to place was violence because in the 80s, Miami was a very violent place. Mm. It was a, uh, there were a lot of race, di racial disturbances and a lot of drug violence here in Miami, wow. like really, really bad. It was a murder capital of the world. And I, and I went to the, the high school in Miami High in Little Havana where come in, especially during a period called the Muriel Boat Lift in 1980, where almost 200,000, 150,000 I should give you the exact number, and I, I think it's either 120 or 130,000 immigrants came to Miami, and all of a sudden, how do they get assimilated, acculturated into society? So there were tensions that existed at that time, and there were other issues related to that migration. So Miami was a tense, tense time, and I, at that point, was working a lot in hospitals as a nursing assistant. At our, really? at, our, at our public hospital. So many hats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in many ways, I think that informs my yeah. my my practice because as an artist, I can really tap into all, all those different places. communities. Yeah. And in this one place, in a hospital bed, where you see the 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 symptoms of that dysfunction, the violence, where you see Haitian refugees who have experienced violence because you're literally tending their burn wounds or you see a, mm. a depressed woman who had tried to commit suicide but missed so she's missing her mandible and you're curing her yeah you know, it's when you're when you're seeing the 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 impact of violence in society and your formative years are about building community you connect those two and say how can we begin to help heal and then you find yourself in antarctica in 2006 with the National Science Foundation. Antarctica. Doing an art. I was like, didn't we skip some chapters? I'm like, what are we, doing, where did we get to our article? Was doing an artist and writers fellowship, a residency okay. as an artist. And a scientist wow. tells you that the ice you're standing on threatens to literally melt mm. and drown this city that you and I are sitting here. Then you see profound violence. You see violence across ecosystems, you see destruction of the coral reefs, of the habitats, even of wow. the last few remaining mangroves. And of course, you see the displacement and pain caused not by a political revolution, not political refugees like my parents were, but climate refugees who mm -hmm. lose it all. And all the, all the pain, the suffering, the anguish, the economic despair, the collapse of nation states, the mm. collapse of Whole ecosystems and you go wow those are some wounds we begin we need to heal and care for right mm -hmm. so that's that's my way of explaining to you my trajectory as an artist and I think being yeah. informed by all of these experience but having that sensibility as a son of immigrants yeah. positioned me to be in this place to try to problem solve and address these issues you know yeah no I mean I love that I mean I'm also a child of an immigrant uh, shout out to my mom <laughs> Kaji out there watching this episode. She always, you know, That's usually watch, there, yeah. usually watches my episode. She'll probably like this and appreciate it. But it's true. I think it's an interesting story where like a lot of us who grew up with families who 
may have left their countries by choice or not by mm -hmm. choice have to then think about you know the trauma that comes with that and yes. there's intergenerational trauma Absolutely. even if like i as a child grew up with like my own sets of privileges and access like that trauma still lives in my body that still lives somewhere and there's outlets of pain like you're saying like there's violence where you see ecosystems being destroyed mm -hmm. you see communities being destroyed you're a part of diaspora as you see mm -hmm. the people back in your homelands having their places destroyed there's so much grief you hold in your body both like as someone who might be directly connected to that or someone who just feels it and witnesses it as just a human being at, at this time in society so i'm just wondering like how has art been a tool for healing for yeah. for you and the people around you yeah, so look, I, early on in 1997 in Bolivia, I'm working with street children. These street children are literally kids who used to live in rural areas and are coming to the city to try to make some money. They got cut up in basically sniffing glue because they can't even afford drugs. But now they're street children living on the streets. So yeah. I used art as a way of giving them the ability to connect with others. We created these huge murals in a place called Plaza San Francisco in the middle of La Paz. And the very people who they would reach out to and beg for money, they were now reaching out to and saying, come help us paint a mural by writing a message as to what you would do to mm. help me in this condition. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you can argue I'm not going to give you money, but what's your solution, Mr. Banker? What's your solution, Mr. Lawyer? What are you going to do to solve this problem? So it gave it gave those those kids a sense of purpose. Here's Here's this uh, nonprofit groups. Here's this artist. Here's this whole community that's saying, you belong, we believe in you, and we're elevating, amplifying your voice and giving you a vehicle to connect with others. Wow. So that's one example there. And another one that I, I think was pretty dramatic, I'll get to environmental. Let me just take you through, <laughs> through youth issues first. Yeah. I was in an adult prison with, uh, with youth, and um, there's this thing called direct filing where instead of the judge deciding whether uh, the crime you committed merits you to be treated as an adult or a kid in you know in court yeah the prosecutor here in the state of florida makes that decision on uh, his or her own in other words the judge doesn't have a role in it and i think that that's like i i think it's unconstitutional but even if it isn't i think it's unethical as all yeah. hell and it's not horrible. Uh, it's horrible public policy cuz any kid who goes to adult prison is a throwaway kid and in my mind, there was a, a, a movement that was about making these kids look like predators. And most of these kids were brown and black. And it was easy to dismiss them, they, to throw them away, right? Just to, just to, to prejudicially just say, you know, these are scary monsters. So what I did is I took paint. <laughs> I went and I created murals and had all sorts of rap sessions with them. And we had uh, music that we created together. There's a wow. whole campaign we did. But... <laughs> what I did is I got their hand and I painted their hand with paint. And then I had them make hand paintings like they used to do in kindergarten. Oh, and I created wow. that as an installation to humanize them. And oh, more importantly, to explain wow. these are children. You may think they're scary monsters that you're going to throw away and lock away. But these are children. These are 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds. These kids don't even have the developmental capacity to understand the sentence that you're going to give them. And much less the potential to be rehabilitated it's not good so there was art right there was art trying to give them a, a therapeutic space because i also had them write messages where they would admonish other kids not to come the path they did because they're here now and they see where it ended so mm. there was a therapeutic pro-social bonding component but there was also 
I think this very strong conceptual layer that showed us who these kids really were, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, when it comes to environmental issues, the idea of you reclaiming your front yard for nature by planting it with native trees, something I did, and I'll throw another one at you, originally as an art installation at the North Pole, the National Science Foundation. He's like, let me just casually <laughs> plug another no, no, amazing thing that I did. At least you prefaced, you prefaced it this time. I love it. So okay. this is a, a big art piece I did That's up awesome. there as a way of, you know, as the North, the North Pole, the big threat is that and the, it's thawing. And we have some people applauding that because they get to to extract, to mine, to drill, to use them as navigation routes that will lead to ports with rising seas that you can't do anything with your goods at. So it's an absurd, <laughs> you know, it's an absurd celebration for the Arctic to melt. And I wanted to create an art piece that empowered individuals to literally sequester carbon, mm. reduce our greenhouse gases so that the North Pole wouldn't melt. I, it was a conceptual thing, but it was a project I did, and it was called Native Flags, and it was about having people plant native trees in their homes and, importantly, put a big green flag in front of their home wow. as a way of saying, I am reclaiming this piece of land to protect sort of all our global ecosystems and also to create habitat for biodiversity. And the important thing about that flag campaign is that if you saw a green flag, your neighbor would say, what is that flag? And you would tell your neighbor what you were doing and, yeah. and the idea was to, to do that so you can see that in each of these cases there's this artistic expression that is really about giving voice mm -hmm. and agency mm -hmm. to individuals so that they can use this incredible power the power of art to help transform society and that's what i do that's what i do with my work you're and like that's <laughs> what i do what flex I do. on them no that's great <laughs> um no that's incredible like i think that being able to create agency for yeah. other people is is well, incredible. To well, tapping into their own agency, like it, you're right, creating, right. yeah, like you're creating the pathway for them to understand and tap into their own agency. Because yeah. a lot of times, people, yeah, like you were saying, they'll they'll paint a picture, they'll victimize right. people, they'll say, oh, those poor communities right. over right. there, or they're another statistic. It's yeah. like no, you're like actually, there's so much art, creativity beauty that's like inherent within yeah. these communities yeah. and i'm just a conduit to create the space for that to flourish Do you know how many artists there are on planet earth eight billion every that's single facts. one of that's us facts. every single one of us is an artist every single one of us has these lived experiences that we can look at mm. and use them to express how we feel. I and need to hear that because I have a lot of imposter syndrome of being like, well, I'm not an artist. I just celebrated you before we started. I know. And thank I'm, you. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't view myself as an artist, but I like. I think I it's because know. in many ways society has uh, determined what who belongs. And, um, yeah. and you know, I'm, I'm a guy who is in museum collections and actually I'm the immediate past chair of the Cultural Affairs Council of Miami-Dade County. And I can tell you this, too many museums do an incredibly good job of alienating you and making you feel like you don't belong. Yeah. And too many museums are complicit in the support they get from their patrons mm. who do nothing but deliver a future with climate catastrophe and the very places that we're supposed to celebrate our collective humanity ex as expressed through our culture do 
little to advance us as human beings. So if that's the space where you're feeling that you're not an artist, dig into a better space, and which mm. is into your heart and understand mm. that you belong, you have voice, and you can help communicate and transform and express. And you know who taught you that? Every ancestor who came before you, who used the power of art to make humans, who make civilization, make society, whether it was on a rock or on a side of a cave or painting on the soils, we have used art as a way of sharing our humanity. So there's I'm eight billion artist. of us. Eight billion I'm an of artist. Us. I'm claiming it. You are, you course. heard it. You heard it here. I'm an artist, and you are too. I yes, love that. Of course, Absolutely. Wow. Thank you. That like maybe a little emotional, existential. It was wonderful. No, but it's true. Like I mean, mm. I think it's just one of those things where it's like people need to see that inside themselves mm. as storytellers too. Like I think one of the yes. biggest issues that you embrace or tackle when it comes to climate is the need for storytelling and yes. storytelling that comes directly from the communities themselves. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, like, what are some ways people can start tapping into their energy as storytellers? You've already brought up tap into your ancestors and ancestral knowledge and wisdom in your heart. Can you go a little bit deeper on that? Because I, I want to practice some things after this. Sure. And look, in many ways, find out what is at your soul that tears at you. Maybe some injustice or just some tension that you have. And then sit on that for a second and then find out how you want to address it. I recommend that you do it in the context of community with others because I think it will resonate more and you won't feel like that imposter <laughs> because you'll literally be building mm. and learning and sharing with others. To me, it's very hard to call something a piece of art unless someone else experiences it. Right? Mm. It's incomplete until eyes, ears, you know, unless, unless there's a sensory that sees that. But in that tension where you're trying to figure out what you're trying to resolve, right, you will find a creative spark to help answer that question, mm. whether it's a poem or a gesture or something. And it's not about mimicking someone else. It's just about digging deep into yourself and trying to figure out what, what it is that you can say. Mm. And just like in therapy, just communicating some emotion that you have inside helps you resolve that. Well, in a more sort of visual way, expressing that through anything that your body creates, a, a dance, a movement, a mm. word, a gesture, a line, a drawing, let's Let's that come out. And once you acknowledge that and honor that, then you do it again and you do it again. And practice, you know, will make you feel more comfortable in that zone. And there'll be a place where you realize that what you are saying matters. It matters to you and those who you're working with. And then you'll say, oh, this may be a practice. Mm. This, this may be a space for me to do something. And in many ways, I wouldn't be speaking to you on this mic if you hadn't done that already. <laughs> right you you have a good point right? you have a good like, point like, good remember point. the first interview you did like sure. like you literally sure. you found your voice you're right you found your voice doing this <laughs> like, am i gonna cry <laughs> right now like, i cry all the time so don't start because both of us will be crying <laughs> like, i got sea levels rising and then it's gonna be all this water, <laughs> just too much water, just too much water. no thank you right? thank you no you're right it's like about the process like yeah it's funny like even when you you get so far into your process there's always there's always more work to be done. There's a lifetime of work to be done. And sometimes it's just, it's hard to even recognize the need to look back to recognize that taking each step really does make a difference for you 
aligning towards that truth, which mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we're gonna dive we, we into can talk next. About. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> owning your truth. Ooh, we're getting into it. So something that I really loved about this person sitting next to me was this talk that that he gave earlier today, and it was about you know you're talking a lot about alignment and how everything is a process. Everything mm -hmm. has its own time, mm -hmm. has its own time and place, and that these things take time in terms of understanding yourself and your purpose mm -hmm. and what you're meant to do on this earth as a vessel, as a conduit. And for myself, I feel like the work that I'm doing now with the platform I have, that does always feel like my purpose. Like I feel very aligned in that. And I didn't always have the answers. I didn't always have the steps, but I just went for it. I did it imperfectly, right? Yeah. which is great we all do we all do because <laughs> we because we no, you're improvising you're yeah. trying to figure it out and yeah. you better be imperfect yeah. you better fail because if not <laughs> right. you're not trying hard enough no you're so, so right yeah, you're so you right. better be imperfect you know <laughs> and, but with, the, with that being said yeah. i think even with that and you know keep keeping on keeping on it's that question of like trying to remain true right mm -hmm. or, or aligning to your truth and i you know got to an amazing point about a year and a half ago where i was able to make this my full time job as a creative which was amazing right yeah thank you thank you, thank you you know it was hard it was hard it was sleepless nights it was grinding it was a team you know we're going to get into that later the importance of community and team but you know the way i view it is like i got to this point and this place where it was like all of a sudden i could make a living out of this right but with that being said it was like this balance then of getting offers and getting everyone. It, it was like all of a sudden, like it was so hard to find funding to so that it being like, everyone wants to throw things at you. And then you have to have like your own internal vetting system. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where this question of scalability or having a bigger platform and being in bigger spaces, people almost expect bigger from you, which is kind of interesting when we view capitalism and right. what's happening. It's like, we should be honing in and, you know, it's interesting. It feels like antithetical where it's like, as a content creator, someone who's on the internet, you're just viewed as like, get bigger, get bigger, get bigger. So you have a bigger impact, bigger this, bigger that. But there's something about that that feels so like challenging <laughs> and really upsetting and frustrating to deal with where it's like, I have a team. I have a team of young people of color. Um, I don't believe in unpaid internships myself. So I want to pay people. I want to pay myself. I want to make an impact. And I'm trying to also pay my bills to survive and don't want to work for one of these big corporate media companies or, an, or a big mainstream nonprofit myself. And what I admire about your story is that you were able to navigate through your own lessons to build something yourself, which is incredible. And it, I know from personal experience, that is so hard to do. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't even know what my question is. I just kind of want to dive into that a little yeah. bit on the on the complexities of that journey as like an artist or a creative like navigating that line of getting funding being able to fund your work funding the impact you're trying to make while also staying true to yourself because yeah. i'm really struggling with that and would love any advice or insights that you may have on that topic well we're talking a little bit about mentoring if you remember right yes. and part of the uh, shout out i'm going to give of course is to adam roberti who's the executive director He's behind the camera right now is the executive director <laughs> of the foundation and this morning he and i were at at the um at the talk where you're at he yeah, exactly. in fact he was leading the talk and i, I think i was you know we we're sort of having a conversation but about how important mentorship is and how you were talking to me about how you're mentoring the individuals in your team 
And your question was about this very thing about this tension. And I think the way I answered it for you is, is that if you understand what a mentor is, right, what's a mentor is someone who understands that there's value to all these lived experiences, but that the journey is longer than your own timeline. Mm. That if you believe in your ideas, your role is to ensure that those ideas continue. Mm. If your ideas are from your parents' immigrant experience and that <laughs> were distilled into you, and now you have all that knowledge, you can distill it and send it forward, mm. then, then you don't have to angst so much about solving it all yourself. Yeah. Because if you can find in your mentees a journey to move it forward, then you don't have to compromise anything. You don't have to worry about, about doing something that's against the grain of what you're about. You can stay true to your core. And the truth is that if you understand your role, and your role is to model the right thing to do, mm -hmm. then by you having a longer horizon, mm. right? understanding what your path is, it's not about instant gratification, it's not about how many likes mm. uh, or mm -hmm. views you have next week, but it's about putting this process in place through time, then you have this kind of integrity and genuineness that allows you, gives you the personal space to decide what you're going to model for your mentees and mm. for the rest of society. So that helps you, right? Because no, that's you're, really good. Because <laughs> you're sitting here going, oh my God, how do I do all this? Well, <laughs> yeah, literally. you don't have to do all this. You just have to do your best to do it right. And if you fail, then you correct. But you don't have to sell out, right? Yeah. Which is the big tension, right? Do yes. you sell out? No, you don't have to. And one of the things I'm proudest about about my career is that in many ways I'm fearless independent. And I think that's what you and I were talking about yeah. too, that although I may have different institutions that I, uh, that I work with, whether it's in academia or commissions that I get, at the end of the day, I am extremely vocal about how I feel. Mm. And I am not in any way compromised to not speak or say what I want to say. And as you grow older, if you are driven by the conviction that you have about the, the your ideas, then that that grows with you, and there's a certain strength in that that's palpable. So then you attract interns like Adam Roberti, who understand, oh wow, yeah, my ideas resonate with uh, this professor's idea. Let me mm. see how we can collaborate. And then as you have seen in your mentees that these are people you believe in and they believe in you, then you begin to have these... It's like natural gravitation Gravitation almost. and yeah. these futures that are intertwined with different timelines because I'm older uh, <laughs> and you're older than your mentees, but yeah. different timelines, but they're intertwined and now there's this resonance. Wow. So it's not all on you, right? It's not all on you. You and the others are moving together. Wow. And the idea is let's have society and community move with us. Mm. And over time, I think, I think we make progress that way. So wow. there's a lot to do. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering coming. Yeah, but there really is. But don't, don't think it all lands on your shoulders. You, can, you, you have others here with you. And, and your <laughs> And your timeline isn't uh, what you think it is. Your timeline is eternal. You're part of this huge, huge lifeline that started 
a long time ago and will continue until training. I don't, I don't even know where to go from there. I'm like, that was, no, that was, thank you. Just thank you. Like I, I think it's one of those things where being a kid, a person under 30, I guess at this point, you know, and, and operating this way, it's one of those things where like people, I'm in this weird age where people expect you to almost like be so grown up, but then you're also treated as a kid at the same exact time. It's such a weird age, like your late twenties, where it's like, I'm just like in this weird space where it's like, I'm in these rooms, like, you know, having to run a team, but at the same time, everyone's like, you're just a kid. And you're just like, wait, but like, Look, then was, what do I do I, then? I was, I was calling myself a kid in my forties and you will too, just so you know. Because it's the energy, it's the right. energy. Just so you'll know, but right. um, I don't know if in, 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 in uh, <laughs> remember the final uh, in, the, in the conversation this morning here, where um, I had originally told Adam that he was going to, you know, I'll speak and then you end it. And then after he spoke, I said, actually, I'll have the last word. <laughs> remember what my last word was? It was basically saying, el jefe siempre, y, oh, no, no, that wasn't the last word. The last word was, <laughs> if you have a, if you have a mentor that doesn't believe in you and doesn't elevate you, then get yourself another mentor. So guess what? I got my, my things confused, with, <laughs> which is actually an important thing, right? Like understand that your mentor is about making sure that, that the mentee outgrows the reach of the mentor. Otherwise, you're diminishing. You're not growing. Yeah. But to, to the point you were talking about, about this sense of what someone in a boardroom or in a, yeah. in a, in a, in a space is going to judge you by, uh, there's this funny thing that we have over at the foundation. So as you know, um, Adam runs the Xavier Portada Foundation, which advances all of my social practice. All this work I just told you yeah. about, I found in Adam and then the individuals that he has recruited to go and work in community, new life, right, to the work that I had been you know, persevering and working on with different teams and institutions over the past few decades. Mm. And there's this cute saying we have, which says, el jefe siempre tiene la razón, which is absurd. It's the, the boss is always right. And we only say that whenever I get it wrong, <laughs> right? Because obviously there is wisdom and insights and perspectives that you have, you know, that the other people in that room don't have. So I don't want you to ever feel that that you don't belong or that you 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 don't have the the capability in this fight. You are essential, and for those who are older and have done a lot, just because we have more years than you, you are the only vehicle we have so that our ideas have a place to move forward. You are literally an essential component of the knowledge that we have developed and the ideas that we have. You're going to take them and create different iterations, but you are the most important thing that we have because if not, everything dies when we do. Mm. So don't ever feel you know, diminished or lesser than. You are literally the life force of our ideas, right? And that's why I came here this morning. That's why I came here. <laughs> I'm a life worth of Yes! I came here this morning because there's 250 of you in the audience. That's true. 250 pretty of good group. you. It's a pretty good group. That I needed to tell this to. That I, you need to understand how valuable, how significant you are. And you're in tune. We don't have to convince you. You're already halfway there. So keep on marching forward and, you know, no apologies. And God, yes, make mistakes and be playful. And guess what? 
remind me of how playful I used to be and the energy <laughs> I used to have. That's important too, because that's cathartic and it also invigorates me and inspires me to move forward. And you know what the best thing you do? You give me hope. You give literally give me hope to continue fighting because I don't feel like tired and alone and like, ah. Uh. Right? I got hope because there's other people here who are following and listening and taking whatever they can, you know, from what I've created to go on their journey. That's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, just getting to talk with you also gives me hope that like I that it's possible. It's possible to live a life in integrity mm -hmm. that doesn't have to be so contrived with struggle. And like if you were able to do it. And you, you know, you lived in a different time and we live in a different time now. It's like, that gives me hope that like, I don't need to like worry so much about compromising and struggling that like my ancestors and people before me have like literally have struggled and sacrificed yeah. to make it easier for me yeah. so I can make it easier for other people. So you also give me a lot of hope yeah. that like I can be a proper mentor to other people. And like, this is the intergenerational power and exchange that like needs to happen more in mm -hmm this space when talking about saving the planet. So yeah. I really love this conversation. So before we go, um, I just wanted to know more about like, uh, we didn't really dive that much into your art, but like, I feel like we dived into like your soul, you know, at the same time. So that is your art too. But I just wanted to know, like, you obviously gave really great advice at the end, but just for people who maybe like want to know how they can go about finding a mentor, like, what is your advice for cultivating a relationship like that? Yeah, so I, I, one of the fellows like you upstairs asked me that uh, at one of the breaks upstairs, and she was having conversations with her CEO, and it's a small team, so the CEO and, and this future leader talk all the time. And what I told her was find that place, because there's you know different people, and it's not like a direct mentorship. She's trying to align so that CEO, this older person who she respects very much, finds her to be someone that he wants to to elevate and 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 mentor. And I said to her that this person who you respect has a life purpose, and he is finding a way for that life purpose to continue, you know, beyond his years. Mm -hmm. And there is these parts of his work within the organization as CEO that aren't getting the traction that he wants mm. because they're too difficult, people don't believe in it, you know, people are in their silos. Mm -hmm. Be attuned to where that tension, that search is in this CEO. And on your own, find ways of allowing that CEO to see in you a path for movement. Mm. And there will be an affinity that gets created between you and that CEO because he sees that you can open a place where he is stuck. Mm. And in that interaction, in that exploration, you'll begin to see affinities and eventually trust. Mm. There were dozens of people who I had as mentees, mostly you know, within art or within science before the executive director of my foundation came along but he listened he was aware and he also had a life history of someone who cared passionately passionately about educating others he had worked protecting sea turtles teaching kids at a nature camp 
was in love with the ocean and since he was a little elementary student was involved in environmental things and he was also a lifelong vegan so here's someone who clearly walked the walk right and then he lands as my student the graduate student and i give him a couple of things to do these projects that i've been doing for years and he was a rock star he just took those projects and found that path where all of a sudden I found a way of advancing these ideas in a way where others were inspired and I didn't even have to be in the room, right? Wow. First follower type, right? And all of a sudden the mentorship began, right? Mm -hmm. So he was our poster graduate, poster child, you know, a <laughs> graduate student. And eventually... He's behind the camera and, so and by the way. I haven't, I'm not looking at him right now. And eventually <laughs> became like this really indispensable part of the practice. He also put in a lot of, you know, sweat equity and really made it work. And because I found Adam Roberti and because of the mentorship, <laughs> I decided, yeah, I'm going to build a foundation. Wow. So him joining um, the, mentee, was the, the mentee. Wow. You know, I had tried creating nonprofits before, but, you know, finally it's like, oh, yeah, this is going to work. And he oh became. And he be, so that's the power you have. That's the power you have wow. as a young committed passionate person yeah. to be able to do that and that's what i told them to do upstairs today i said there's 249 of you not 250 because adam already has a mentor but there's 249 of you who are at a conference where there's 249 people who are my age that are looking for someone like you to advance your ideas and anyone listening to us today knows that there are these individuals who literally are looking for you and believe in you and yeah. and and will understand that maybe you're a diamond in the rough they'll understand that there's still some training to happen but if you can find that connection between each other where you can begin to to move things that had seemed impenetrable forward then you're going to create that kind of resonance and that working relationship yeah. that will be this dynamic um, mentorship that will intertwine your lives and help, again, move humanity forward. Amazing. And to finish us off, can you just plug how people can check out your foundation and sure. your work? Yeah, so if you go to uh, on social media at Cortada Foundation or cortadafoundation.org, you'll see the work there. In there, there are different projects where you can participate in, and there's a way of literally doing our engaged work in your community away from Miami, Florida, where we are now, <laughs> using our toolkit cool. and giving you the ability to do that. And if you don't want to do one of our projects, then at least be inspired to do your own. But make sure to follow us and Adam is really good about responding to emails and stuff like that. So he definitely will. And I'm shout excited. out to Adam. Yes. Shout out to Adam Roberti, the mentee extraordinaire. <laughs> amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining this amazing episode, giving me so many gems and insights today here at Aspen in Miami. Uh, it was such an honor having you on the show. And thank you for joining another episode of the Brown Girl Green podcast before the sun sets. Um, I interview environmental leaders and advocates about diversity and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. Thanks, everyone.